Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. This show comes from a series of shows that T2P2 did out in Washington, D.C. We went out there for a seven-day residency and did seven shows on a wide variety of different topics. And so this show uh, comes from our transportation show that we did on U.S. infrastructure. We had two guests on that show. We were at the Capitol Fringe Theater in D.C. Our first guest was Casey Dingus, who is the Senior Managing Director at the American Society of Civil Engineers. He's been with the Society since 1985, and during that time he has overseen numerous programs under his leadership that have won national awards and recognitions from organizations such as the American Society of Association Executives. Our second guest was Vin White, who is a senior policy advisor at the office of the secretary at the U.S. Department of Transportation. He's worked with the DOT in various roles since 2009, and in that time, he has worked on numerous interagency initiatives, including coordinating activities related to Hurricane Sandy rebuilding in the Northeast, a $13 billion effort to repair and restore the region's infrastructure. So with these two guests, we talked about, obviously, a lot of different transit and infrastructure ideas, both locally and nationally nationally in kind of a small picture and big picture format, looking at where are we now currently, where should we be investing, and what is the future going to look like for us. I hope you enjoy the show. Gosh, thank you both so much for being here. Yes, just um, be careful. We are very poorly insured. Um, <laughs> I just don't know anything about this stage. So, so uh, thank you both so much for uh, being here and uh, taking time with us. Uh, there is I think I said both of you at uh, different times before we started the show, there's so much that we could talk about. Um, and so I guess a way, and I think that this is something both of you have talked about and written about, is just sort of to try and set the table as far as where we are now, like nationally uh, in terms of either infrastructure or transportation uh, infrastructure specifically. Sort of, I know that uh, ASE does a report card about some of these things. I know that uh, you've been doing talks about this. So maybe we'll just, I mean, uh, I'm in graduate school uh, from the University of Minnesota, so I like report cards. So we'll just start with that. What, what do we get? Um, well, the, uh, the, the nation's overall infrastructure grade is a D plus. Now that's up from a D in 2009. So the line is starting to move in the right direction. Um, that's a tiny triumph to quote the Stephen Colbert when he got a hold of the report card. Um, but we still have a long way to go in the transportation space. The transit's a D, roads are a D. Bridges, there's a lot of focus on bridges. Some people get a little nervous uh, going over bridges. Those are actually up to a C plus. Um, there's been a lot of funding at the state level. There was, um, you know, stimulus, stimulus was uh, a bad word for some people in this town, but actually some of that money actually got out to the states and helped in a number of infrastructure sectors, not just bridges, but, but water systems too. So um, the grades are not good. Um, they're starting to trend a little bit in the right direction. And when we look at some of the states, you know, this isn't just a federal thing, sure. right? There's local government, state government. The states and red states and blue states in the last two years have been starting to step up and taking some tough votes, have been raising some resources to devote to this issue. So at least on bridges, things are looking a little better. And I want to ask more about how it, but can you just give us a sense of when you say it's a D or a C or what is that based on? Is that based on the number of dollars that's going into it, the uh, you actually go out there and you chip away at a little bit of a bridge and you're like, ooh, that one's pretty crumbly. That's a C minus. Um, we shouldn't have paper mache here at this. So, um. the, we look at a lot of, uh, there are seven criteria. We, when we did the report card, there are 16 categories now that we look at. So let's just focus on roads since sure. that's kind of point of focus here. 
seven criteria that we use. Funding is one of them. Maintenance is one. Um, sustainability, sustainability and resilience are, are new factors we're looking at. Capacity. Uh, you could have a road that's actually the pavement's in good condition, but it is simply overwhelmed by the demands that are being put on that road every day. So uh, and in some cases, transit or other policies might be helpful in a community. You know, we're even civil engineers now. We love designing and building stuff, especially big stuff. Um, we can't really design and build our way out of this. It's going to be a mix of, of new structures, better management of existing facilities, and then policy changes that we can make. Uh, in this region, there's a lot of telecommuting that goes on in the work environment. Flexible work schedules can help, and there's also been a number of innovative infrastructure projects. People have heard of things like the hot lanes uh, projects that are that are going on. Sometimes, of course, we've all heard of that, but Lexus it's not. Sometimes, um. called, <laughs> sometimes called Lexus lanes, because maybe you have to own a Lexus to pay $10 to go 10 miles to get to Tyson's Corner. Is this like, uh, you have a tag on your car or something? That, and you have a transponder. transponder. So these are, um, these are uh, toll facilities that don't require people to operate the, the toll facilities. Uh, so, uh, uh, Mr. White, I wanted to ask, uh, how do, so it's uh, sort of a similar question of uh, how did we get here, I guess. Uh, is it, uh, you know, it, it, everyone points to sort of creating the highway system under Eisenhower, and then they're like, and then, uh, and then maybe we just didn't do anything until yesterday, and we're like, oh, God, we forgot to, like, take care of infrastructure for the last 60 years. We should do something. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, one thing I'll say about infrastructure is it's not it's not movable. So you kind of you can't put in the uh, Eisenhower uh, highway system and then just kind of shift it around to uh, you know to accommodate uh, capacity, space, um, uh, land use, migration. Uh, one thing that we've looked at is more of this forecast. This you know that's where we've been. This is where we are now. And then what does the next three decades hold for us? Mm. Uh, and it's not. Uh, if you if you look at the trajectory, we might have raised our grade a little bit, but it's it's not a pretty picture. Uh, we're going through a series of congressional actions that will get us to the next cliff, that will help us patch until we get to the next cliff. Uh, cliff what we, is a very scary word in terms like of bridges. Use, yeah, um, we like to use that as, um, a bridge without a cliff. A bridge without a cliff. Okay, uh, so uh, you mentioned several things in there, and uh, so sort of similar question about. Uh, how you do the grading, how do you do the projections then? Well, the projections are actually based off of a series of uh, what we like to think of as unassailable data and research experts uh, weighing into what paints this patchwork picture of the future. Uh, so what does that picture look like? Uh, well, in 30 years, we're going to have 70 million more Americans. Uh, what do you do with Americans uh, when you've added 70 million more? That's like adding New York. Texas, and Florida. And what I tell people is it's not Manhattan, Houston, and Miami. It's the entire states. Um, what does that mean for migratory patterns? 75% uh, of people live in 11 distinct mega regions across the country. Um, so as we're shifting and moving, what does that mean for how we use the land around us? How do we gain capacity from that? Uh, I wanted to... So I guess what I don't know. You just asked a really good question. I was trying to think of a way to improve it, and I can't. So, uh, how do we do that? Uh, <laughs> well, um, and so one of the uh, 
areas that I think holds promise is obviously innovation. Um, so how do we gain efficiencies uh, through technology, better uses of data? Um, how do we gain, uh, how do we increase safety? How do we cut down emissions? We can do that through technology. Um, there's vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle technology where people talk about cars that communicate with other cars. Uh, it's really just an exchange of data and, to create efficiencies. Just on this point alone, yeah. okay, how many times have people been at a light, waiting to make, make a left-hand turn, and there's 10 cars in front yep. of you, the arrow turns green, and you're the 10th car, and you're wondering if you're actually gonna make it through that life, that, that life cycle, okay? Yep. So if the cars are actually communicating with each other, they can all start moving at almost the same time, and then you will get through the intersection. Have you all seen any movies about the future? Because, I mean, <laughs> it just seems like the moment that computers talk to each other is like the end of the world. It's over from there. Listen, listen, if it, if it could make it easier to get around this region in rush hour, I think we would... We would all be okay with the Mad Max future that you're bringing. So, um, <laughs> I've just... I, there's plenty of gas. Uh, so, um, uh, no, so I want to... So, uh, we've got a couple here, and I want to give you... So, technology, innovation, what... I mean, what... Uh, you're, you're a civil engineer. Uh, well, I'm not. I actually work for them. Uh, sometimes I play one on TV. Okay. Um, no, but, no, the technology, there's a lot, and it... You know, all the technology we see in the world is finding, you know, computers and GPS and all this stuff is finding its way into the industry. Although it does look like we kind of build roads the same way we did, you know, 50 years ago. And in some ways they've changed, but, you know, incrementally there haven't been, you know, huge game changers. Although now there's pavements that are being developed that are more porous, so water can go through instead of, you know, running off and, you know, creating, you know, bigger stormwater problems for us. There's now these robots that are being developed to... Um, you know, walk around on bridges and no. inspect bridges. And <laughs> in fact, bridge bots. In fact, we, maybe even they'll even name one of them T2P2. I mean, they're looking for names for these robots. So, you know, it's something. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. It was bridge bots. Bridge called. bots. Bridge bots. And so they just they go and they do the picking away at the bridge to Actually, see whether it's... they can use non-destructive technologies to you know monitor the condition of the bridge. And and now when they build new bridges, the Minneapolis Bridge, um, which I'm sure you guys are familiar yeah. with, when that was rebuilt. Um, they embedded the bridge with uh, monitoring technology. So I like all of this. This is all I, I appreciate uh, the, uh, talking about different ways to sort of preserve the uh, the. Uh, infrastructure that we have and making it uh, last longer through these different technologies. However, I mean, we're in D.C., and it, the historic thing is for a, a congressperson to be able to go home and say, look it, I built you this new bridge, or I added a lane to this highway or whatever. Uh, and so I've got, I mean, I, I guess I'm asking how much is that part of these equations as well when you talk about what more do we need? Is it that we need simply to invest that amount of money in, in fixing and maintaining stuff, or is it that we need to build new stuff in, in addition? Vin, well, well I, I think that, um, you I know, think you got to do both. Right, you have to do both, but I think that we are dealing with uh, quite a backlog of uh, infrastructure that needs to be addressed. Um, Bridges that are falling, bridges that are obsolete or structurally 60, deficient. 60,000 structurally deficient bridges in the yeah. United States. One out of every four. Jeez. And, let that, let that uh, and another 60,000 are functionally obsolete. Yeah. What is that? 
Functionally obsolete. That means you wouldn't design a bridge like that in this day and age. Uh, in other words, it could be a bridge that has lanes that are too narrow, may lack shoulders. That, it's not that, just a bridge that like goes to New Jersey, so no one wants to go on it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> alienated one audience member. You know, uh, you know it's, it's interesting. I do hear more about the bridge when I talk about this to audience. You know, the bridge to nowhere comes up more often yeah. than the Minneapolis bridge collapse. That's weird. That's interesting yeah. people got burned people got really worked up about the whole idea of bridges to nowhere i mean i i again so we do both uh, i i do kind of want to press this though be and maybe it's because you both are uh, very smart policy folks because uh well let me ask this of vin so uh, my understanding the way a lot of the department of transportation works mm. is as we even heard you uh there's a lot of money that goes to the states to do things so mm -hmm. i guess the question is how much can if you say you know you guys you really need to spend this money on yeah. uh, maintaining and fixing things and then the state's like sure we will and then they build a monorail or something uh, <laughs> well we haven't approved too many monorails uh, recently uh, but uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, there, there's funding in the form of uh, formula funding, which is just that. Uh, you go through a formula process, and it uh, spits out a number as to which states get what allocation. Um, and that's very rigid, those dollars. Uh, there are discretionary dollars that are a very small percentage of where we get to actually say how you can use this, where you can apply it. We can establish criteria. Uh, one of the great hopes, I think, for the future uh, is the establishment of performance measures where we're actually able to say, like, you've reached this threshold, so you are awarded or rewarded for that, um, for making those marks. Um, but that's still kind of a new phenomenon. We're still very so much like stuck in the old... It's like a no road old, left well, behind kind the, of... There was a moral hazard in the past where if a state was truly irresponsible and let something completely fall apart, well, hell, you know, the feds will pay 80% of the, the, the price of a new you know, interstate highway system, so... You know, just don't maintain it at all, and then you might actually get more money out of Washington. So I think we've moved beyond that, and you know, the, the states have to be you know more responsive. We don't and, want to reward right. um, bad behavior. And the states are stepping up. I think you alluded to it before. Yeah, um, they're coming up with their own scheming systems. They're coming up with uh, you know various ways to match dollars to leverage and get those investments out they're, the door. They're actually raising their gas taxes in some cases, indexing them to inflation. And yet the mere mention of the word gas tax in a town like this and people are running for the tall grass as fast as you can imagine. And we haven't raised it since 1993. It was never adjusted for inflation. It's now a dollar cheaper a gallon today than it was a year ago. So if there ever was a time where you could have a sober debate in this town about using the gas tax, it's now – and it's not perfect because yeah. a lot of cars now and in the future are going to be powered by something other than gasoline. Yeah. So we got to get – I think in the future it will be a vehicle miles traveled approach. In other words, how many miles does your car actually drive? What, so what why do the gas tax now at all then? Be? Why not just immediately go to that then? Well, we've got a pilot program in Oregon. You know how, long, you know how it goes. You've got to pilot this stuff somewhere. Yeah. you kind of got to you know, noodle all the issues. Right. And Oregon's had a pretty good – um, experiment with this and you know people get as soon as you talk about te you know technology and big brother knowing how many miles you drove in a year you know all of a sudden you know I got the ACLU involved in the issue <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I, that you look at me as though I should also be panicked along with you. Um, no, you shouldn't be. Uh, Trust your government. So, okay, so 
we're gonna we're gonna turn it over to the cast in just a minute. But uh, I want to, and again, as I promised, we're gonna open it up to you all for questions in the second half. But before uh, we let you all go, so uh, we talked. Uh, obviously, I think innovation, technology, or things. I guess what are the other? Just to sort of round out this part of the conversation, big changes. Uh, that are currently happening or are projecting to happen in the next 30 years or so? And oh, well, um, there's this thing, it's called climate change. Uh, how we're adapting, how we're making our systems more resilient. Does uh, that mean all the bridges just need to be higher if they're at coast level? Uh, or, or, or fastened better if they're not high enough. We oh, saw it God, I didn't mean that as a serious question. Now I'm sad. <laughs> it just floated off the foundations in Katrina. Oh, yeah. So, okay, so uh, going so, so, so in the future, though, to give you an example here, um, you know, we talked about population earlier, uh, talking about climate change, talking about Katrina, bringing that up, is um, you, you know, how one affects the other, where they intersect. Uh, Katrina uh, hit, that was the largest mass migration in U.S. since the Dust Bowl. Uh, mm -hmm. The population of Baton Rouge tripled overnight. Um, so how do these two trends meet? And then how do we adapt to facilitating for that there? The other things that we have to think about are just how do we align our decisions in dollars? These have to be practical decisions that are being made. Um, and then just how do we get our stuff? If we're 390 million people in 30 years, how is freight going to flow? Uh, and what are the impl implications for innovations in that space oh, yeah. when drones are delivering your Amazon and when you can 3D print what you want in the basement? How does that affect you getting what you want. Hmm. So resilience, I think, gets at the climate change issue, the, especially in coastal environments. Any infrastructure, transportation, or whatever, will have to be resilient. And you're planning out for 100 years in, a, in, a, in an environment that's kind of very uncertain and hard to predict. Um, uh, the other thing about infrastructure is the sustainability issue. And when we at ASC talk about sustainability, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a three-pronged approach. It has to be a project or a system of projects have to be economically viable, environmentally acceptable and socially supported. So you really need all three pieces of that to, to have a um, um, what we call sustainable infrastructure. And you, can you say just a little bit about that last piece, how you figure out if you figure, how do you decide part? whether something is social? Well, you know, think about it. Um, look what happened in Boston where, um, you know, we built the interstate highway system back in the day and then, you know, you get 25 years go by and people say we've got this elevated structure that's cutting the community in half. Why don't we just, you know, put it underground? So there were people suggesting that back in the day. They weren't a loud voice or necessarily a, a compelling voice necessarily, but they certainly had a point of view. And as we look back in time now, we're, we're thinking even out here in Tyson's Corner, the idea of metro going above ground or underground was a huge issue. So uh, whenever we're making these infrastructure decisions, taking the longer view. Um, taking into account the values of, of society, but you would never in this day and age have an elevated highway structure going through a community where you're literally separating a community in half. And a lot of these communities are trying to uh, come back to integration with the center city. All right, uh, on that uh, uh, note that's great for comedy. Uh, uh, no, this has been, these guys are so great, uh, fantastic. Can we do a big round of applause? If you have a question, please raise your hand and I will call on you. I was singing. Uh, please raise your hand uh, if you have a question right here in the front and then I'll come up there. So this question is for Mr. Gingis. 
There are a lot of obstacles facing birds on their flight paths these days. Oh, yay. <laughs> we have windmills and wind turbines. Do you think that there's a specialized solution, maybe a dedicated fly lane that we could offer birds? It's like she's combining the two things he knows about. Well, <laughs> okay, um, it's my younger brother who works on the building wind farms in the Midwest, so don't confuse me with him, but that is an issue that has come up. Um, you know, I think birds have kind of over time have selected the flyways they want to use. I remember doing an undergraduate thesis. Uh, I didn't go to college in North Dakota, but the focus of my thesis was in North Dakota. <laughs> because this, you needed an excuse thing, to go there? <laughs> and this is infrastructure. Right, right. I mean, it's just, I mean college can think, what am I doing in North Dakota? Anyways, um, there, the government was trying to build this big water project out there, a big infrastructure project, um, and it was so damaging and ill-conceived. It was going to destroy 13 national wildlife refuge areas just in the state of North Dakota, but it was also going to disrupt what was called the Central Migratory Flyway. So, you know, these flyways have been established by, you know, migratory waterfowl over the, you know, I guess the eons. I mean, there's some on the, in the western part of the United States. There's this big one in the central part of the U.S. So I think they've kind of established, you know, what they need and, you know, where they're going to fly. So I think it's really incumbent upon us to try to work around that once we have that. And does that then end up being part of the the grades or the the suggestions or policy prescriptions that you all put out as ASCE? Well, again, remember, these projects have to be economically viable and environmentally sustainable and socially supported. So, you know, infrastructure is, is looked through a lens differently now than it was when a project like the Garrison Diversion in North Dakota was conceived. In, Good old in Garrison Diversion. Yep, uh, it's one of my favorite diversions. Uh, so I'm sorry, there was a hand up there in the. Yep. Yes. Okay, good. Next question. Uh, absolutely. No, I mean, uh, you're talking about technology that's, uh, you know, some people goof because the Japanese technology has been in place for 40 years or so at this point. So, um, so there is hope. Uh, I think backing the hope and aspirations was uh, funding in the form of the recovery dollars. Um, and so as we speak, they're turning over dirt and, and building this stuff in, in, uh, in uh, California. Um, but then on the safety side, too, there's things that will increase safety on rail. Uh, positive train control was kind of a buzz term that was used at the beginning of the summer. Uh, there was the crash in Philadelphia. Um, and this is technology that will also, in its own way, talk to uh, the operations of the train to get it slowing around, twisting curbs and whatnot. So I, I do see it ha holding a lot of promise in rail. Quick, quick factoid on high-speed rail. My staff just dug this up. Yeah, give me a number on high-speed rail. So um, it would cost $500 billion to put 80% of the U.S. population within a reasonable mileage distance of high-speed rail. So $500 billion, a lot of money, um, but we've seen in our recent lifetimes here far vaster sums of money spent on uh, other Enterprises. Yes. B. Yeah. They just use B's and now T's for trillions. Yeah. If it were 500 million, I mean, yeah, we could do a Kickstarter yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, I no, I have two questions though. I and uh, well, I, there's lots more audience questions, but uh, on rail because it is something I wanted to ask about. So. Uh, 
there's a piece of this that we talked a little bit about it being a, a socially accepted project. I have rarely seen, other than maybe education policy, something that at one time was something a lot of people agreed on that has suddenly become, or not suddenly, but, but relatively recently become so divisive. And you have people of different political persuasions run almost single-issue candidacies against uh, something like a rail line or a streetcar or whatever it is. Um, and I, that's interesting to me. It's, uh, it does seem like a shift. And so when you say you're hopeful about it, I guess I'm trying to figure out, A, how, where that antipathy towards this come. And I mean, I guess I'm pushing a little bit to say, how realistic is it really when you have a big segment of the political class, at least, who says, you know, over my dead body, I will literally turn down like money. Even if you build this for me, I will stand in front of the train. So we've seen that before in the past where these political stances uh, turning away money in places like Florida and places like Wisconsin and Ohio for high-speed rail. Um, so, you know, a new governor comes in and that's just part of his platform. But I think I really believe and think that there is a tipping point, um, sort of a fatigue factor that comes into play where, um, you know, and I'm, I'm hopeful uh, that you know, some people feel like we can't just go two months or even six months. Um, the reality of big infrastructure projects is it, t it takes years to do these things. So when you say, yeah, we're going to fund for four months or six months, in infrastructure speak, that's like the day after tomorrow when it comes to building these things. Um, uh, just a, another aspect of this, not just rail. And, and rail is, is really important in terms of freight movement in this country. It is, a, it is of huge importance. I think the passenger side is still coming along. You know, if we can just get our regular rail system to perform a little better, I guess you know, I'd be happy about that. But there's also an inland waterway system in this country. We have barges that are moving massive amounts of raw materials. A lot of that you know, goes into export markets, which is good for this country. So there's really, if you think about it, three parts to the surface transportation system in this country that moves freight and people. And that's you know, the, the highway system itself, cars and trucks. You know, for, for better or for worse, you know, that is the way it is in terms of how our culture has developed. And then there's also the rail system and the inland waterway system. Again, it's kind of a three-legged stool, and all parts of that system really have to be working well. And the inland waterway system got one of the worst grades on the report card, a D minus. I mean, it's barely. I mean, the people, the Corps of Engineers, are saying, you know, you really don't think it's an F. Um, you know, parts of that system, the locks, more than half the locks on that system are past their design life. Oh no, the locks. Um, I, Concrete and steel. I, yes, I, I'm aware of a lock, uh, not, not just for a door. Um, one, and you brought this up then about the, the moving uh, tr uh, goods, and particularly where we are part of the country in the Midwest, we see tons of oil moving, right? We actually did a show just recently in North Dakota, and uh, you could time your watch by how often the oil trains come by. It's about every five times an hour, it seems like. Uh, and that seems to me to be one of the things that we don't talk about a lot. I have a lot of friends who love rail and think, oh, we absolutely should have a rail. And they almost uh, out of a sense of duty say, I'm going to take a train to Chicago or to Fargo or something like that. And then the oil trains come through and they get priority. And so then the, the passenger trains end up sitting for literally hours uh, on that, and so uh, I guess uh, these are competing systems right now. And I guess the question is, how do you well do you move the, past the, that? Well, the freight company—I mean, Vin, you may know better than I—but the, the the freight companies, I mean, the railroads own much of the rail system. Right. And Amtrak only owns a little bit of, of the rail system in the United States. So, passenger rail has to make deals, 
and if you will buy you know buy permission to use you know the the freight rail system you mentioned the the oil the oil tankers i mean this is a safety issue i know the department of transportation is focused a lot on the safety of the of the rail cars that are carrying all this oil and again this has been a, you know this is a good thing for the united states the notion that the us could actually consider exporting energy out of this country when you know a lot of us grew up in the you know in the 70s when it looked like we were going to run out of energy uh, in the year 2000 so um, you know it's really a game changer the energy profile in the United States now but it does create safety issues in the rail sector it's going to be carrying all that oil so does if you're projecting out a new rail a high-speed rail system is that all new track then it would need to be I presume uh, no not all new track um, some of it is shared use uh, some of it uh, large parts of it will be will need to be enhanced uh, to accommodate higher speeds um, but in places like California it's it's a real lift to do that out there because part of the process is purchasing parcels of land um, doing what is the environmental process uh, which can sometimes take years um, uh, Casey had mentioned how uh, 500 billion dollars would fully integrate to one high-speed rail system in the United States you know how much we've invested um, well, we should guess. Through uh, recovery. I'll give you, go ahead. Do you guys want to guess? Um, 100 billion. 101 billion. <laughs> <laughs> the dollar. Uh, Price is right, the dollar gets it, actually. <laughs> About $8, $8 billion. Is, $8 billion. Is, is what our last recovery funded for that. So, 508. I wish it were 100 or 101 billion. Uh, okay, I'm, I took a lot of time there, but I want to get some more audience questions right there. Um, hopefully this isn't going too far into sci-fi territory, but if we're looking you know, 30, 40 years out, it seems like self-driving cars or at least some degree of self-driving controls in cars are likely to be part of the future. What impact do you think that'll have on, I guess, infrastructure planning, like Um, well, I think it's a good thing. We're, we're kind of bullish on innovation, uh, and I think integration is one of the, the big pieces to this, but also safety. Um, so when you have different modes of transportation trying to kind of compete or integrate together, you have to, you have to worry about safety. On the workforce side, I think it's a, it's a little bit like kind of that, that balloon that when you push it on one side, it kind of comes out the other side. It's, it's this, you know, you, we have one of the biggest retiring workforces in transportation um, highest percentage over the age of 40. Uh, that will need to be you know, either retire or will need to train up again. Uh, but when you do train up again, you, you want to do it in these other fields, these emerging markets. When you say the transportation field, uh, is a, what, what, what all does that entail? What, what? Transportation workforce, it yeah. can be everything from air traffic controllers to bus operators to what are becoming more computer science oriented jobs to programming uh, uh, operations in vehicles. Uh, we talked about high-speed rail. We talked about data, the uses of big data. To and everyone who's doing that is an octogenarian. <laughs> okay. Question though, I think those technologies will make existing systems more efficient because I think about, and then you truly able, will be able to text and drive, not to take uh -huh. any, oh. away from. Yeah. So, so for Secretary so LaHood's campaign on. Um, Distracted driving. Yeah. For instance, uh, platooning and trucking. It's the concept that trucks can automate and literally drive 60, 70 miles 
with this much space between one another. Uh, that's the type of efficiencies that we're talking about. Um, and if you've ever seen a demo on the autonomous vehicle that, that Google puts out there, um, they've done some in this area. And it's amazing what you see on the graphics in front of you. You see all these other boxes of cars that are kind of drifting into lanes, drifting ahead, going faster. And yours is, is monitoring all of that around you so it stays within this one sphere. But it's amazing when you see these are all humans and they're all kind of going like this. And this is the autonomous car kind of going like this. Having like a platoon of sixty trucks, um, I'm envisioning my head. Uh, what's the point of freight trains at that point? What's the uh, point of investing in the freight train system? Those systems work yeah. together a lot. Um, you know, uh, like the barges can handle massive amounts yeah. of raw materials. Um, the uh, the trains can <laughs> carry pretty big loads, but they will often get to a point where you're literally, you know, taking. Um, something right off of the train and putting it onto you know the, the, the flatbed of a truck and it, it does kind of the final drive to the final the final destination so these systems actually work together and back to your question your, the point you were making about technology if you look at the here's another deadline Congress has on the FAA reauthorization mm -hmm. I think it's September 30th um, they're trying to build out the next generation air traffic control system and what that system will allow is the planes to fly more efficiently use less fuel fly closer together when they're on their approaches into yeah. airports. So, <laughs> again, again, uh, you know, these are, no, it's important, important system. And it's going to take years to build out. It will cost tens of billions of dollars, but we'll be, we'll be better off for it in the end. Okay, uh, there was a hand right here. Great. Uh, so, actually, on that, you know, is one system more obsolete than the other? I, I've got a question. So, let's really briefly abridge the history of transportation. Please, very briefly. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> So, you know, we build a bunch of lighthouses in the 1790s, we subsidize a bunch of canals in the 19th century, we, we give the railway land grants out. Then we uh, sign the road acts in the early teens and build a ton of highways, spending a ton of money. And then, of course, by the time the 50s rolled around, the Eisenhower Act exponentially increases the role of highways, and we also build a lot of airports starting in World War II. We really seem to pick a lot of winners and losers in this kind of history. And we really never holistically look at how the system works. Like you go back 100 years and you look at how a road functions, and you see people working with food cars, working with street cars, working with automobiles, and all of these modes are crossing all over each other in kind of an organic system. Up until, say, some of the competitive grants of Tiger, where you see grants going for different modes based on properties where they really do a cost-benefit analysis, policy in this country seems extremely prescriptive towards one mode or another, choosing winners and losers, and never holistically looking at the problem. Would you, would you agree with the statement that there has Oh, that's always a dangerous <laughs> question. Would you, would you agree with the statement that there has never really been a comprehensive transportation policy in this country? Because it seems to me that we've never really had transportation policy looking at the entire field in the modern age. We could have been more holistic. I agree with that, yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Um, but you know what? With the winners and losers were picked for better or for worse. Um, we still have a $16 trillion economy in this country, and a lot of that is because of the infrastructure that we, and you, you laid it out, the canals, and uh, you didn't mention the Clean Water Act and all the you know, water pollution control technology that was put in, and just modern drinking water systems that were put in at the beginning of the 1900s in this country did more to extend life expectancy in the United States than any vaccine or any medical innovation. So, you know, we take all this for granted, 
but I think in terms of our longevity, in terms of life here, and just the, the size of the economy, um, maybe some better bets could have been placed, but the bets that were placed weren't that bad. Yeah. And I, I'll just add that I think that it's very much a uh, user-driven uh, system. So, you know, when you had the uh, intercontinental rail, uh, the golden spike, everybody wanted to take rail to go see the other side of the country. Um, when Eisenhower's highway system was conceived, uh, everybody wanted to take Route 66 to go see California. Um, so I think what you're seeing, though, now is more of an integrated system. Um, tends to happen more in the urban setting. Uh, bike lanes, right? Uh, you're seeing transit. Uh, bikes that you can put on your bus and then take that to the next location. Um, so it's all about choice, I think, at the end of the day. That's so, but to follow up on this, there is a piece that I wanted to ask you in the terms of, uh, in both your cases, being uh, sort of responsive versus prescriptive. And I, uh, I totally understand and I, I'm always interested in folks in both cases because, you know, I'm sure that you both see, oh, the ways people are using uh, transportation or infrastructure or even technology is changing in ways that we didn't predict. And yet I also have to imagine that there are ways that maybe you do want to – even if we're talking about climate change, we probably do want to start try and incentivize people to make choices that are different. So how much of your jobs are prescriptive versus just responding to the things that are happening? Well – Prescriptive, if, if we're going to do that, though, I think we're better off in a performance-based approach. In other words, you describe the outcome that you want to see without prescribing necessarily all the modes that are going to be used or, the, or even the technologies. You could just say, we want cities to have acceptable mobility. You, just, you define what that is, whether 50 miles an hour during rush hour on a highway or metro doesn't break down you know, every five. I mean, met, look at our metro system in this region. I mean, it's unbelievable what's happened to it. And, you know, my whole time here, it's gone from this gleaming new system to one that, frankly, I try to avoid at times just because I seem every time I get near it, I'm offloading at West Falls Church. So. <laughs> um. West Falls Church. Hilarious. Get I get it. That's uh, <laughs> a town. Same, same question to you. Yeah, I would say that my, it, my job is a lot more um, – I, I don't want to use the term prescriptive, but I guess that's the way I would go is you know, when you're thinking about policy, you're thinking about outcomes, you're thinking about performance. Um, and so you, you do have to take this more holistic view. Sure. Uh, sure, we, at the end of the day, we do need to kind of push the formula dollars out there. Uh, that's what's going to keep the system that we have in place uh, up to snuff. But, um, but I'd say mine is a lot maybe – it's, maybe it's more of a 50-50 but I think it's a lot more prescriptive, and we have to be a lot, a lot more forward-leaning, at least, mm -hmm. in, in con conceiving these solutions and implementing them. Mm -hmm. But we don't want to be so prescriptive as a society that we're inhibiting new technologies, new thinking, new approaches. Mm -hmm. So I, I really I, I find the performance-based approach appealing. Okay, yes, this will probably be the last one we get to. I, my question, I wanted to build off something that Mara was saying about some of the uh, governors turning down money and so forth. Uh, we've seen, you, you talked about how in cities there's a desire for all these different types of transportation, bicycling, transit, to coexist, and then in rural areas, mostly only uh, driving, and that means there's a large contingent of voters who say, I don't want any money spent on bicycle infrastructure or, the, or any money spent on transit. And as a result, states, which the money goes to, a lot of them spend a fair amount of their time being either totally hostile to kind of the things that cities want, 
We saw that most recently in Maryland, mm -hmm. where the governor took all the money from Baltimore for everything Baltimore wanted and just gave it to the rural areas. Hmm. Is there anything that the uh, Department of Transportation is doing to help make sure that the urban areas don't sort of get completely ignored by their state governments, you know, approximately half the time? Um, well, you know, we, we don't, in terms of elections, because that's a little of what you're touching on right now, um, uh, that, that's not for us to decide. Like, we, we, we do what we can with the tools that we have. Uh, one of the biggest tools that we have involves our regulatory process. So when, a, when Congress says you guys need to make a rule, it needs to meet A, B, and C, and then everything in kind of in between, we get to tweak and interpret and push out there. I think that's where we feel like we can make the greatest gains to change that proposition that you've described. Um, but you, you're also very accurate in talking about you know, when, when a governor wins, uh, to the victor go the spoils. And that's just kind of how it works in a formula-based system when you're putting, putting those funds out there. I, I think people need to remind themselves that we're the United States of America. We're not the 50 states of America. Um, you know, in red state America, um, you know, the, the breadbasket to the world, that stuff has to end up on a barge or on a train or on a truck. So it is, even though it's in the hinterlands, it is tied in infrastructure systems. Hey, hey, that, hey, hinterlands. That tie into cities. <laughs> <laughs> that tie into the cities. And at the same time, I think the cities have to be a little concerned about rural America, too, and their infrastructure challenges, which could be the condition of the dam. You know, there's, there's over 70,000 dams in this country, 5,000 of them are high hazard dams, meaning if something goes wrong, um, we have dead people, okay? Um, there, there are levees. We don't even know how many miles of levees that Congress just passed a, a, sa a levee safety law. The first thing they have to do is come with the inventory. We don't even know. We think it's 100,000, 150,000 miles of levees, not even sure. Um, so um, different parts of the country have different infrastructure challenges, and I think the country needs to unify and not separate on these issues. Uh, so last question, and it's only because we did – this is the one kind of – it's not technology or, or mode that we didn't really get to, which is uh, just walking around, right? Like uh, just uh, moving around in the terms of uh, – we've obviously been walking a lot while we've been here, and we walk a lot at home. And um, I, I, I guess the question is simply we talk about all these new technologies, and as we even started with, there's all this emphasis on wanting to build something new. I guess uh, – Actually, how we get to even the types of transportation we use is a really important question as far as uh, what our infrastructure and cities look like and, and the ways that we then use those. Uh, I guess as a kind of closing question, how do you both think about that, the stuff that happens outside of a car or a train or a barge, if that's how you get to work? Um, you know, bike, bike lanes are, you know, it's part of the transportation legislation. You know, communities can, you know, use some of those funds for, for bike lanes, for, you know, pedestrian access, for, um, for facilities that have many uses. There could be a, a transportation connection, but the facility could also have kind of cultural and other meanings for a community. So, you know, communities have to, you know, have the ability to kind of, you know, call their own shots on some of this stuff. I mean... You know, places are different, and I think that's why people like you know traveling around this country because there's so many different places to see. So people are going to handle the challenge differently. Some parts of the country are going to be more into biking and moving around on foot than uh, than other parts of the country. Yeah, and I think it's obvious, but um, when you kind of see it, taste it, touch it, um, that's a real game changer. 
Uh, so, you know, those of us who have tried to get our parents to understand, much less get into an Uber or a Lyft, right? It's like the first time that they do that, it's like, this is sliced bread. This is an innovation. This is incredible. What is Uber? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, a tremendous round of applause for you.